Hey, Joe, can I tell you about something? Sure, TJ. You can always tell me about stuff. I'm your friend. Great. Well, speaking of friends, I want to tell you about the Movie Byte t-shirt that is now available for order to our friends. From now until August 10th, that's just 12 more days, in case you're counting, from the day we release this episode, you can order your very own Movie Byte t-shirt in any size you want in two fantastic colors. TJ, that just sounds great. I think that that would be the perfect t-shirt to watch movies in anytime I go to the movies or at home, just sitting on the couch. You know, and it, it, for anything you want to watch, you know, whether it's movies or you know, television or play video games, how, how do we get one of these or two or three of them? Well, I'm glad you asked that, Joe. Just go to moviebyte.com slash t-shirt and you'll be able to order as many shirts as you want. Oh, it looks like uh, our friends should hur- hurry over there if they want to get one of these shirts in the next 12 days. You know, it's, you know, there's not a lot of time. Uh, I certainly think they should. And friends, we really hope that you will because it will help support the next great thing that we're working on, you know, this uh, reboot that we keep talking about. Yes, and uh, we appreciate the listeners who have listened faithfully over the years and given us such great feedback. You guys really are the best. Well, uh, okay, TJ, don't you think that it's time that we get over this and, uh, you know, review a movie or two or three? I think we should. Let's do it. The bad guy shoots point blank and misses, and then Ethan Hunt kicks the gun up out of the thing, grabs it in midair, spins around, and, and puts five bullets in the guy. Like, no, this is not the way this actually would have yes. gone down. And he wasn't wearing a stormtrooper helmet, so he has absolutely <laughs> no excuse. No excuse. Dodge this. I am the father. I'm here on a mission of mercy. There's only one God, man, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. Let's put a smile on that face. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Open the pod bay doors, huh? I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to the real world. This is episode 146 of the Movie Bite Podcast. It is a show where we talk about movies, movie reviews, movie news, trailers, Tom Cruise, and more. I'm TJ, your host, and I have a mission for you should you choose to accept it. And joining me today, he has accepted his mission, and it is impossible, but somehow he will pull it off. It's Joe Darnell. All right. I sound pretty cool when you put it that way. I think you're cool. Thanks, TJ. For the record. I've been giving you a hard time lately me, in, the, in the opening. I've been giving you a hard time, so I thought I'd change it up. And just, you know. Yeah, I was I about to ask if side. you had plans to turn evil against me or something. Oh, I have lots of plans. <laughs> I have a feeling you have to be up to something. You're going to reveal your deeper, dark secrets, your chemical warfare plans. I can't reveal anything to you. This is, uh, you know, You're a movie top review secret. terrorist, right? Top secret. And, and if I reveal anything, then you would disavow me. Mm. Mm. And I'll kill you with uh, a knife, a gun. I'll, I'll choose my weapon later in the show. Yeah, that, that, that would be a good thing. Well, before we, uh, first of all, Joe, I, uh, I kind of jumped the gun last week. Uh, I don't know if I clicked the wrong weekend on Fandango or what when I was checking what movie we were going to watch. But I thought that uh, Rogue Nation was coming out this weekend, but it turns out it's coming out. Well, I thought it was coming out last weekend. Turns out it's coming out this weekend. So I can't even we can't even see it yet. So we've oh, decided dude. to do something different than what we talked about last week. Uh, okay. We're going to be, we're going to do something never before done in the history of Movie Bite. We're going to review three movies on this show. 
And there's uh, going to be an intermission in the middle, so you might want to get comfortable. <laughs> yeah, no, we're going to review Mission Impossible 2, 3, and Ghost Protocol. So that should be fun. We're in a, we're in a Mission Impossible mode for the next couple of weeks. Oh, do you, is, can we officially say that this is a impossible mission? It, it is totally Three reviews in one episode? Mission. Absolutely. It's impossible, but we're going to get it done. And we're still going to talk about other things before we even get to the review. So we are, we are, I, I think you're trying to kill me. I think we, well, the thing is like, I don't expect to take all that long talking about mission impossible too. So, uh, there's that. I still um, think you're trying to kill me. Yes. Well, I am trying to kill you. That's one of my evil plans, but, um, world domination starts here. Speaking of evil plans, uh, no, got nothing. Um, so Michael <laughs> Douglas is not signed on for the Ant-Man sequels. Joe, what is up with this? Oh, man, what's going on with that? I mean, Marvel, come on, get your act together. He's the best actor you got. So this article reads, The recent release of Ant-Man from Marvel Studios is a refreshing comic book adventure with a different tone, style, and contained story, bringing us some of the more intimate movies from the comic book studio. One of the reasons it works so well, besides having a solid lead like Paul Rudd as Scott Lang, uh, is Michael Douglas is in it. The veteran actor lends some credibility to the movie and brings some authenticity to the role of Hank Pym, the original Ant-Man. However, fans might be disappointed to hear that as of now, there's no guarantee that we'll see Michael Douglas in Ant-Man 2. And then Michael Douglas is quoted as saying, I'm not signed up to, to anything more. I've learned a whole lot and would look forward to more if it comes my way, but I've not. But if not, I have enjoyed the experience. Now that I understand a bit more about Hank Pym 2, I think in this one, I had to carry a lot of plot and exposition. In the next one, I hope things get a little more bizarre, you know, the quantum realm. So that's a little frustrating. He wants to do more, but they have not at all confirmed him for more. So it sounds like Marvel may not want him back. But it's Uh, encouraging to see that he had a change of heart uh, between signing on to make the film and finishing the production and seeing it in theaters and the response. I get the impression, and I deservedly so, I understand why he'd be hesitant to sign up for the usual you know, rack of Marvel films just because it's what everybody does these days. There's probably sleeper agents out there that have contracts with Marvel that we don't even know about yet, TJ. Yes, <laughs> Hail Hydra. Just, yeah. <laughs> well, and, I mean, you know. he is 72. Like, maybe he's just like, I'm not signing contracts or whatever. I'm not doing that. Uh, who knows? But there, there is another side of this, too, that it, it, in a little bit of follow-up to what we said last week, I was kind of frustrated by one of the little details where – he basically, without saying it, ha- gave over his suit to uh, the Ant-Man man, uh, Scott Lang, or was that his name? Yeah. Yeah. Scott Lang mm-hmm. is played by Paul, Paul Rudd. I get their names mixed up. But anyway, so Scott walks away with the Ant-Man suit at the end of the, uh, suit at the, end of the movie, and that struck me as odd because of the considerable uh, investment that the Pym character put into the suit and that it's his original one of a kind suit. It just seems, you know, kind of like, um, why would you give away your, your best toy or, or <laughs> even uh, your best invention? You do know we reviewed this movie last week, right? You yeah, know, I know. Remember it just, this is the point that this is follow up TJ. I know okay, we've never had that on our follow show up. before. Follow, follow up. up. Yes. Okay. So in follow up, it feels like, this explains why they they ended up handing over the suit to Scott because they didn't know or or wanted to guarantee that they would have Michael Douglas back to in, be responsible for the suit and at a later date hand it over to Scott. So that might explain why we have that impression. Hmm. Hmm. 
Okay. Uh, that, that was just my two cents. It's yeah. too early to tell what uh, Ant-Man 2 could be like. I, I'm actually surprised that we could – we are going to get a Ant-Man 2, right, TJ? I think it's without without question we're getting really? Ant-Man 2. See, I didn't take that for granted even after the success of the first one because we're still talking about Ant-Man. It's hard to believe that this character is as popular as any of the rest of them. Uh, here we go. Uh when we may see Ant-Man 2, according to Kevin Feige, is an article title here. So, da-da-da. The answer is I don't really know. We're entering territory that's an incredible problem to have, uh, which is too many franchises to navigate. That's a very, very high-class problem, yeah. and we're faced with the high-class, da-da-da-da-da. Um, so, I mean, there's absolutely there's going to be an Ant-Man 2. It's just a question of when. Mm. I, I don't think there's any question that we'll have an Ant-Man 2. You know what's interesting? Unrelated. Well, kind of related because it's Michael Douglas. Uh, I was looking up something about Michael Douglas just now, and so I Googled his name, and I noticed that it said spouse, Catherine Zeta-Jones. Isn't that – so Catherine Zeta-Jones is 45, and he's 70. That's just kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Hollywood. Uh, yes. Uh, anyway, I think that, uh, we should move on from that as, and, uh, you know, we're, we've expressed a little bit of, uh, I've expressed a little bit of grief. You've, you've not really expressed one way or the other. I don't think, uh, that, that maybe we might not see Michael Douglas in Ant-Man 2, or maybe we will, mm. who knows? Uh, that's frustrating. Wish we knew. Uh, here's something that I find odd. <laughs> Just the idea having come, uh, grew up in the nineties and watching full house, uh, Fuller House, the uh, spinoff or the update or the whatever it is to Full House, the sequel, the TV show to Full House, has added Eva LaRue as Danny's wife. Say what? Bob Bob Saget's Danny is married in Fuller House? This just seems wrong. I just, uh, I don't know about this. Joe, what do you think? Uh, DJ, you're going to have to refresh my memory. Was he, uh, Eva part of the original show? No, not at all. Not at all. Even hinted at was she no, no, a no, part no. of any sort of sitcom nope. over the years? Nope. Oh well, Eva. Okay, so Eva Larue, I know her from CSI Miami. That's all, the only thing I've ever seen her in. Um, but she was certainly not in Full House. Danny was not married in Full House, and uh, he uh, he had a lot of problems with uh, finding uh, some. <laughs> just you know, you, you can imagine the '90s sitcom and he would, the dating mishaps that would happen with Danny. Uh, mm. <laughs> so all I know about Eva is that she's got impeccably straight teeth. And besides that, uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know if know. I even care. Uh, do we care about Fuller House? Uh, well, we've talked about it before, and I care. I care in that it's Full House, and I you know grew up yeah. in the '90s. Like anybody who grew up in the '90s cares mm. about Full House. Yeah, Full House was pretty legendary for its time. Yes. I think this so. is what uh, twenty years later. Do we uh, do we still need <sighs> to care? Da, 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 da. Um, Are there reruns of this show on the on the television? Or so the, the original. These days? Oh well, sh- I'm sure you can find it. I haven't watched it since I was a kid, but the uh, show ran from 1987 to 1995. I mean, that is a good chunk of my childhood right there. And I remember being able to tune in when it was on and stuff, and watching it as it aired. And I don't know. I, it's it, I will I will certainly follow this even if I don't watch it, just because you know Full House, man. Come on, where's your heart? Uh, I, I left it right here somewhere. Um, I, I think it's interesting. Um, I, I just have to wait and see the show because it's really hard for me to see a product of that time brought up to modern times. I know, I know. That, I, it, I'm, can I'm it really, feel like the original show at all or are they going to just no, say, I don't think so. let's modernize it and make it a sitcom of its new time? Yeah, I don't and, know how you sustain that. And that's the thing. Like, I don't expect this to actually be any good and, and it frustrates me. Like, why not let it be what it was and just leave but, it alone? But I think that they're going to try to make it work. I, I think that they're consciously aware of how how poorly sitcoms do in the modern times. Uh, I, they're probably trying to innovate and 
do something that we haven't seen before and make it work. And but, I just don't know what that could be. It, but I think that will be juices there. I think that will be the show's downfall, though, is, is trying to do something new on uh, out of something that we loved, something that was not new, something that was very cliche in 90s. And I just don't like like the the entire draw of what Full House was cannot be present in a modern day telling of Full House. I just don't I don't think it's going to work. It's uh, it's interesting developments. I'm I'm sure that there is more to be said about this particular casting choice. I don't think it matters to me too much one way or the other as long as the show is entertaining. I don't mind any additional casting. It just uh, whatever they choose to do. If they could pull it off and they can make entertainment that that works for the entire family, hey, I'd, I'd entertain the idea of watching this with a wife and with the kids mm. because I watched a little bit of The Full House growing up. It was one of the few sitcoms that my parents would actually have on in the home. So I can understand why you care. It's uh, it's just interesting because this is so far removed from anything we watch on television or Netflix these days. Yes. yes. I'm still, there's a few sitcoms on Netflix that you can still catch from the 90s. But I don't know why you would unless – you you're watching that show because you just wanted to check it off your checklist, your to-do list, you know, like, uh, Oh, the entire series of how I met your mother is on TV and I wasn't really watching TV when the show got started. So I guess I'll go back and hi, watch, Joe. you know, everything from starting. Hmm? <laughs> I said, hi, hi, Joe. <laughs> no, actually, uh, that's what I'm I, doing. I'm, 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 I, as I have time, it's not like a, Oh, I got to watch the show, but it's like, if I have a, like a, a 20 minute, you know, break and I can't watch a full TV show, I will watch how I met your mother because I've never watched it before. And I would like to, I would like to be part of the cultural conversation uh yeah. there's another another uh another topic altogether sure but yeah it's the, i think the reason why we still have sitcoms today so i don't know if maybe this could be a renaissance for daytime comedy mm, <laughs> I, mm, I just don't understand mm. where they're going to find an audience because well this is the thing like um, here's here's what i see them doing they're like oh hey remember that show you loved as a kid well here it is it's full house and we're, we're using the name fuller house and we're bringing all the characters back but it's not going to be the same show at all and so we're drawing you in with this false pretense and you're going to hate it and you're going to leave and it's not going to work <laughs> that's that's i mean this is my cynical side i suppose but that's what i see happening here <laughs> uh, did you i did not know you had a cynical side you didn't well welcome to my world mm. <laughs> do you want to tell us about this next bit of news yeah so this is actually pretty exciting if it pays off we have brian Singer, really? the director behind you know i actually do enjoy a good superhero movie tj every now and then and i know we never talk about that on this show never never <laughs> and if uh if given the chance i would actually like to enjoy a good fantastic four film live up to their name, maybe just once. And if they could combine that with the X-Men, then mm. all the more power to them. So this doesn't it's, stand out to you and scream, me too, me too. Fox can do a, can do a superhero mashup too. It's not, that's not what this says to you. No, I think that what's really cool about superheroes and how they work out in the comics is because all these properties belong to the Marvel family. They actually all coexist in one universe. They mm-hmm. all belong to one great big planet earth where there are many supervillains and superheroes that rage and you get to see different dynamics and develop characters in nuanced ways it's sort of like why would you want a movie all about princess leia really you even though she is an archetype and she makes a great contribution to the star wars movies you don't want a movie dedicated to one skywalker like that you want to see the other characters in the same film as well and, and given the chance i think you make a better more compelling film when you combine all of your archetypal characters into one good film the difficulty mm. tj is actually making a good film with so many characters because unless you have the powers of joss whedon 
it doesn't seem like you could pull it off. Well, and, and even Joss Whedon struggles to pull it off. Yeah, exactly. So I think it can be done. It's just sometimes it doesn't pull off because and you I don't have hope that Fox will be able to pull this off. I don't know what to make of Fox anymore because they're <laughs> making this new Fantastic Four, and it seems to be their realization that they needed to course correct from the past Fantastic Four films. They have a completely different approach going into it this time. Now we have yet to see the movie, but I'm very hopeful because. Okay, it does feel rather familiar. It feels like very familiar territory by looking at the trailers. But if they could pull this off, then it's actually going to be a clever sci-fi meets superheroes world. The difficulty, I think, in it is really making villains that pay off. Mm. That That's probably trickier than making the heroes themselves compelling. Now, I don't know if they're really good at humor at all, but that seems to be one of the great tenets of Marvel movies in general. Yes. And I don't know if the Fox studios can pull off humor like Marvel can. Like we didn't see really much in the way of humor in the X-Men movies. I just don't know. Maybe that, maybe that's what they're doing. Maybe they're trying to follow their, you know, their parents' leadership, you know, direction, follow the, the uh, Marvel road. Well, I don't, I don't have any hope for a X-Men Fantastic Four crossover. Firstly, because I think that the trailer so far for, for a Fantastic Four looks awful. Um, and, and secondly, I just, I feel this whole entire endeavor of, of smashing up because Fox owns two comic properties, uh, or they have rights to make two comic properties, X-Men and Fantastic Four. And they're like, Hey, look, uh, Warner Brothers, they're putting all their DC comics together and Marvel's putting all their comic people together and they're making all this money and look, look, I need some cash too. And so let's put these, Oh, Hey, we have these two properties. We can mash them together. I just don't think that it's going to work. I don't think that Fantastic Four is going to be any good. I, <laughs> I now I do hold out hope, like because the the last X Men film was fantastic. Um, and wait, 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 what? Yes, the last X Men film was fantastic. Oh, yes, we talked about this. Uh, Days of Future Past. It was it was it was awesome. It was great. Mm. Um, mm. so that that that's the one shining beacon that maybe there's there's something here. And Brian Singer is the one that hinted that it's in the works and. He does good work, in my opinion. So we'll see. But I don't. I, I yeah, don't he see has enough working. clout in the industry. I just don't know if I'm convinced they can make it work because a lot of stars need to align TJ to pull this off. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't see it. Happen. I don't see it working out well. well. Speaking of stars, Star Wars: The Force Awakens. <laughs> Star Wars bite. Joe, do you know how many shots in the new Star Wars film, Episode Seven: The Force Awakens, are completely CGI? Mm, completely Com- random guess. Uh, is it twenty uh, eight? Yeah, that's a random guess. All right, you're reading the article, you cheater. <laughs> so there are only twenty eight total shots that are completely CGI, and that's out of three hundred fifty seven scenes. So scenes and shots are are two different things. Scenes are made up of shots. So in this entire film, and this is even even though they've been pushing supposedly, the, the, no, well, I, right, that's not confirmed. Right. No, it's not confirmed. But uh, according to MakingStarWars.net, as of last summer when the film was in production, there were only twenty eight total shots that were supposed to be completely CGI. That's out of uh, that's supposedly out of a total of three hundred fifty seven scenes, each of which can be made up of many shots that compose the entire film. Obviously, some things change over time, but it's a safe bet that there weren't a whole slew of totally CGI shots that were added later in production because they take a long time to make perfect for the big screen. I'm excited to hear this. Even though we knew 
that J.J. Abrams and, and Lucasfilm have been pushing the fact that this is a lot of practical effects and that they're really kind of going back to the roots of Star Wars and they're really trying to get away from the overuse of CGI. We knew that they were pushing this, but we I also assumed there would be more completely CGI shots. Uh, you expect, and, and, and I think this is the case, that a lot of your space shots, I, I don't think they're doing model work for space, unfortunately. I wish they would. Uh, I'm sure that's all going to be CGI, but there, I, there's... If you compare this to um, Star Wars episodes 1, 2, and 3, which don't exist, by the way, um, I think you will find that uh, the number would be about times 10 of total CGI shots. <laughs> so um, I'm excited to hear this. I think they're really trying to make this one right. And I'm, I'm just, I hope I'm not hyping it up too, too high before I see it, but I'm excited. Yeah, you got to keep in mind that 28 total CGI shots in one single film is still more CGI shots than there were in any one of episodes four, five, and six. Well, yeah, come on. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm seriously keeping that quota in mind because those films are using miniatures, bigatures, uh, live effects. They would repeatedly I go over and over something with yeah. a matte painting or right. interweave some live action with something that was a complete model. And for their success, I have a lot of respect because most of the time it was only at the seams between some miniature and some live action shot and a matte painting that you could tell the three were not completely of the same world right. in the same shot. But for the most part, if you were to just behold any particular piece of the pie – it looked really good on screen. Yes, I agree. Whereas just knowing that something is going to be a 100% shot of complete CGI weakens the film for me, unless that they can start, you know, making something that really feels really real, not beautiful, well, like the I, most sweetly drawn matte painting, but something that actually feels true to life. And that was part of the problem with the prequels is that even the best of the best, beautiful CGI shots felt too digital. They felt like they felt like they were uh, even though that they seem realish. They feel like they're only realish. They don't feel like they're really real. No, I agree. But I think that you were expecting too much if you want if you want to compare it and say there is not going to be any total CGI shots. I mean, I can and, and to be honest, I think most space stuff these days looks pretty real CGI if it's done well, if it's rendered well. Uh, just because we don't have a frame of reference for that. But anything, anything that we have a frame of reference for, even remotely, is what still feels fake with CGI, honestly, unless it's done really, really well. And I just don't, you know, I, I think I'm happy with hearing the number that there's only 28 total CGI shots. Now, to, you know, let, let, let's be fair. I, I think that Star Wars, the original Star Wars, um, the, uh, uh, what is that called? The despecialized editions where they've gone in and they've used the digital co compositions and they've cleaned stuff up. Like I think star Wars looks better than it ever has, but that's with CGI and that's with things enhancing. That's not with CGI taking over like it does these days. And, and so that's why I'm excited to hear, like it, it feels like then most of the film, it's not that the film is not going to have CGI in it. You can bet that most shots are going to have some sort of CGI somewhere in this film, but it's not that the entire uh, movie is made up of CGI shots. It's not that there are entire scenes, a lot of them made up of CGI shots. It's that CGI is more in its proper place where it's like, let's take this technology and enhance and let's make it better and let's make it look good. That's what excites me about the possibilities here. Uh, you seem very hopeful. DJ. I'm hopeful. I am very hopeful. Okay. Interesting. Uh, well, you heard it from TJ himself, so we shall see. 
Are you uh, are you, you're not hopeful at all? I thought because I thought you were more optimistic of us about the new Star Wars. Film. Oh, I'm very optimistic about the movie from start to end. Just the overall quality, the storytelling, the craft, seeing all of the original faces again. I just don't know if I feel comfortable with the additives, with mm. those things that we know are synthetic all the time, and we're we're saying. Oh, because they have Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford in the movie, then sure, the special effects and the CGI work must be double what it used to be for the Padawans and, you know, the prequels. I mean, not necessarily. Just because you return to the best cast ever and you get the director that you could you could only hope for unless you got Joss Whedon, then <laughs> I don't, I don't think necessarily feel like we should put an awful lot of trust in the CG. From what we've seen of the feature, I'm not that, putting that trust circulate. in the CG, Joe. I'm putting trust in the lack of CG here. Hmm. Well, mm. from what we have seen circulating online with the featurette that's been around, I'm actually really excited about the shots that are completely done with miniatures, matte paintings, and practical effects. I agree. They so why, why, are you, why are you arguing with me? I completely agree. Well, if they can make the CG look as good as the practical effects so that I don't know the difference between the two, then the, we have the best case scenario. I think that where both of us are going to be disappointed, and we're going to get into this when we talk about MI3 um, because J.J. Abrams. I think where both of us are going to be disappointed is J.J. cannot help himself. He's going to have – some completely CGI shots in there of ships doing things that ships could never ever do even in a fake universe. Like he just can't help himself. He has that action flair that he, he has to add and it's going to fret. Like, like I've already seen as, as excited as I was, Joe, when the Millennium Falcon came on screen in that first trailer, right? And it came zooming through, you know, the, the noise that it makes. And it's very, like I had all that nostalgia, but at the same time, my brain was saying, why is it turning somersaults? We've never seen the Millennium Falcon fly <laughs> like that. Why is it doing this weird thing? Like, that's not the way the ships behave in Star Wars. So I think that's where we're going to be most disappointed, honestly. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I'm ready to review one, two, three films. Are you? I am. Let's do it. Okay. Maybe everybody should take a break and go hit the restroom. No, no. Don't stop listening to our podcast. Never, ever do that. No. You want people listening to our podcast in the restroom? 24-7. Yes. Yes. Well, just wash your hands and just don't let us know about it. All right. Mission Impossible 1 – or no, Mission Impossible 2, 3, and 4. Here we go. An hour ago, a bomb blew up the Kremlin. The president has initiated ghost protocol. The entire IMF has been disavowed. Now I've been ordered to take you to Washington where they will hang the Kremlin bombing on you and your team. Unless you were to escape after assaulting Brandt and me. But if any one of your team is caught, they will be branded terrorists out to incite global nuclear war. So what happens now? Your mission, should you choose to accept it. That was from the trailer for Ghost Protocol, because I'm not going to play all three trailers, but Ghost Protocol... <laughs> I was wondering what you were up to. Yes. Ghost Protocol is my favorite of the three, so that was the trailer I decided to play. No. Yes. Really, TJ? Oh, yes. Um, Mission Impossible 2 was released on May 24th of 2000. Mission Impossible 3 was released on May 5th, 2006. Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol was released on December 6th, 2011. Uh, the three films in that same order made 100 or had a budget of 125 million, 150 million, and 145 million. 
The worldwide gross in that same order was $546.3 million, $397.8 million, and $694.7 million. All of these films have made a little bit of coin, some more than others. The critic consensus <laughs> of these films, Mission Impossible 2, your cranium may crave more substance, but your eyes will feast on the amazing action sequences. <sighs> The critic consensus for Mission Impossible 3, fast-paced with eye-popping stunts and special effects, the latest Mission Impossible installment delivers everything an action fan could ask for, a thrilling summer popcorn flick. And the critic consensus for Ghost Protocol, stylish, fast-paced, and loaded with gripping set pieces, the the fourth Mission Impossible is big-budget popcorn entertainment that really works. The directors were, in the order of the films, John Woo, J.J. Abrams, and Brad Bird. The stars of these films were... Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt in all of the films. Ving Rhames as Luther Stickle in all the films. Tandy Newton as Nia Hall in Mission Impossible 2. Doug Ray Scott as Sean Ambrose in Mission Impossible 2. Philip Seymour Hoffman as the bad guy in Mission Impossible 3. Billy Crudup as John Musgrave in Mission Impossible 3. Michelle Monaghan as Julia. Julia, sorry, not Julie. Julia in Mission Impossible 3. And she made an appearance at the end of Mission Impossible 4. Carrie Russell was in Mission Impossible 3. Maggie Q was in MI3. Simon Pegg was in MI3 and 4. Lawrence Fishburne was in MI3. Paula Patton, MI4. Jeremy Renner, MI4. And Michael Nykvist, I don't know how you say that, as the enemy in Mission Impossible 4. The composers were Hans Zimmer from Mission Impossible 2 and Michael Giacchino from Mission Impossible 3 and 4. In my opinion, Michael Giacchino has written the best score of all of the Mission Impossible films thus far. We will see how the new one pans out. Wow. Joe, did you want to make something up about the storyline for all three of these films? Uh, no, but I wanted to say, good job, TJ. That was a mouthful. Um, <laughs> good marathon, marathon of the mouth. Ah, uh, um, yes, it's it's yes. I want to add a comment here that we are not talking about Mission Impossible Part One because we reviewed that in episode one thirty three of the podcast. That's right, we did. Uh, and we'll I talk will about make sure that a little bit in passing, but yes. I think we're going to concentrate on three. That uh, mm, I was going to concentrate on four. Uh, no, I mean like concentrate oh, on the three. On the three. I total. see what you mean. Okay. Well, yeah. yes. So I'm putting um uh, I'm putting a link in the show notes to uh, episode 133 uh, where we talked about Mission Impossible, the first film, which in my opinion is still the best film of any of these films thus far. We will see if the new film that was coming out this weekend will be able to live up. Okay, so we're assuming that you have seen at least one of these movies. You have the idea that it's Tom Cruise showing off his ability to be an action hero. Mm-hmm. He plays the character of Ethan Hunt. He starts out as something of an experienced yet uh, in, a young MVP player in the first film. Sees uh, his entire team go up in smoke. And it's really sad because if you know anything about Mission Impossible, it was actually based on an interesting popular television series. Yes. And my dad watched it back in the day. I think once or twice I saw reruns on a, you know, boring television station like TBS when I was a kid and didn't know what it was. <laughs> it was black and white, I believe, wasn't it, TJ? Yeah, black and white is no good. Psh. Anything that was black and white in those days just looked like it was Perry Mason. So <laughs> I would skip it pretty quickly. Yeah. Now, the premise of the of that show was that it was a team of spies doing really interesting, impossible things. And that was a pretty good premise because, well, it made a very gripping spy story. And it was its own shtick. You know, like James Bond, what is his shtick? Well, he's got plenty of them. And for the Mission Impossible series, 
they actually have a pretty good one. I like the idea that they can do anything they like so long as the missions seem practically impossible and like a really good three ring act in the circus where you have acrobats jumping through hoops and, you know, elephants stacking on top of each other to the top of the, you know, the big top. You can do some pretty interesting things with spies using practical effects again or doing something ridiculous and, you know, repelling from a chopper down to a building like 10 flights below, you know, you can do some interesting things and and they've done it time and again, whereas that wasn't always the appeal of other action films or spy films. It was really one of the hallmark traits of Mission Impossible's long before that became eh, just a given with other action films. Interesting uh, fact. Did you know that Leonard Nimoy had a role in, in several seasons of Mission Impossible, the original TV show? Yeah, I, I heard that earlier this year when he passed away. That Interesting. Was he one of the main action agents? Uh, he was, was he one of the ringleaders? Uh, he was one of the agents um, for a while. Uh, he came and he went. Um, he got tired of the show and he left and, and was like, okay, sure. Um, so yeah, um, he, he did. That was, uh, I just thought an interesting fact I was looking up there. Hmm. So here, here, here's the thing like mission impossible, the original film, again, still my favorite, still the best, um, not without its issues, but it, it was pretty good. Um, and I think that mission impossible Two completely failed to understand what mission impossible was about. Um, yes, and yeah. it's not only like, like it can, like the tone of that film is so entirely different. You don't even believe it's the same pe- you know, Ethan Hunt is the same character, um, Mission Impossible 3, I think, returned a little bit, but even Mission Impossible 3 and Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, they have, they have failed to capture the heart of what Mission Impossible was, like the first film did. Um, and I, I'm, and I say this not as a, I, I don't, I know very little about the TV show. I'm not, I don't know much about it. I'm not coming at it from that angle. I'm just saying, like, in my, like, I just loved what Mission Impossible was, and then Mission Impossible 2 was such a departure. I, I really have no love for Mission Impossible 2, as, as we'll discuss. Yeah. My two cents about the first film, go back and check out episode 133 of Movie Bite. But two things going into our discussion about Impossible 2 is that part one carried like a great story. It felt substantive. It felt like these things were actual high stakes, that that things actually mattered. People dying their lives, like it's nuanced behavior, right? But it wasn't cliche and it wasn't based on false pretenses. You felt like these things really concerned the characters. And when someone would die in your arms, you felt the brunt of that. So by the end of the film, you felt betrayed by some of your supposed allies. You felt like... You know, Ethan Hunt has a lot to learn, but he has learned a whole lot already in this film, a lot more than you would expect many agents of a spy flick to experience for one film. And he carried the responsibility on his shoulders for IMF. You were convinced that IMF was a reputable, well-established professional spy agency, and that is pretty hard for a movie to pull off. If even for its time, it felt like it was ahead of the curve. You felt like you were seeing things on the inside of an organization that was responsible for some real daring deeds, and you didn't feel like there was an artifice about it. It felt very, very real. I mean, I know it's just fiction, but it felt like this could be a little bit of what it's like for spies. Now, we know in more recent years uh, from various books that have been published and what some retired spies have said about their life's work that 
the work of a spy is not nearly as interesting as no. Hollywood has made well, it out to be. Who would have guessed? Come on. <laughs> it's sort of like the contrast between the life of Captain Hook and Peter Pan versus the life of Blackbeard the pirate. It was mostly hot, muggy days on the ocean, you know, uh, you know, ransacking other ships that were full of diseased people you know, carrying cargo that may or may not be worth it to you. Right, <laughs> and right. Who knows if it would be all that interesting. The life of the real, the real life of Blackbeard was mostly interesting for its legends, not because the actual events were all that awesome and like pirates were inherently interesting. They were actually pretty stinky, TJ. I'm pretty sure they weren't wearing deodorant back in those days. <laughs> and for uh, the agents of spy life, it's pretty much the same thing. It's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of incognito behavior. You're pretending to be something you're not so that you can, you know, basically track interesting uh, facts and evidence and, you know, take out somebody carefully and quietly when you need to. But you're not going to do it on a motorcycle chase wearing, uh, you know, really expensive clothes. And, you know, you're not going to draw a bunch of attention to yourself and you're not going to send out one superhero into the field and expect him to carry out the entire mission by himself, uh, which happens a lot in spy stories. And that that shows up in a lot of the Mission Impossible stuff. So all of that to say, part one, solid, a thumbs up. I give it four out of five stars because it's better than it had any right to be. And it just makes me happy. Yeah. All right. Well, um, so do you want to talk about Mission Impossible 2? Yeah. Yeah. Dive into it, man. Well, what did you think? When did you first see this movie? Did you see it in theaters? <sighs> oh, no, no, no. Um, I was not watching movies at that time. We've, we've discussed this before on the show, so not worth going into again. But, but, but no, I did not see it in theaters. Did you even uh, were you even aware of it? Like, no, <laughs> no, 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 not not at the time. No. Um, so, so Mission Impossible 2, I, I actually, I watched Mission Impossible, I think not long before my wife and I were married. I think it was one of the films. She's like, oh yeah, you have to see that. So we watched it uh, one evening. Um, and then Mission Impossible 2 may have been after we were married. It's like, I should watch the rest of the series. And probably so sometime around 2005 or 2006 is when I saw it. And I was so disappointed by Mission Impossible 2 after having seen the first one and having loved it so much. Um, and then Mission Impossible 2 comes along and it's like, well, and I watch it and I'm like, what, what is this nonsense? Like this is, this is not (laughs) nothing about this film is remotely what I would have expected given mission, the first mission impossible film. Like, you know, I know a lot of people love John Woo, um, and that he could do no wrong, but he did wrong. I'm telling you, he did wrong. It was just bad. It was just, (laughs) it was just just a bad film. It just was like nothing about this film was any good. Like the romance. I didn't, I didn't buy the romance. I didn't buy the, Anything that they were trying to sell me there, I didn't buy the danger that the film put me in. The script was uh, impossibly convoluted. Uh, just nothing, nothing. And oh my gosh, do we have to talk about? Can, can we talk about Tom Cruise's hair? No, let's not talk about Tom. Please, Cruise's hair. no. It was actually the <sighs> second thing on my list of my no third on the list of my disappointments. And and do you remember like how long has it been since you watched this film? You told me you may not watch the films before we talked about them because you'd seen them recently. How long okay. has it been since you've seen them? Okay, I, I've seen part one maybe six times, and I've seen them. Every, I saw that film about every two or three years. Mm. Mission Impossible three, I've seen about four times, and we'll get to that when we get to that part. Four, I reviewed when it was in theaters for my YouTube show. Yes, back in two thousand eleven. Mm-hmm. Mission Impossible 2, however, every time the subject came up, everybody who may have watched it with me said, oh, no, you don't want to see that. It's horrible. And so I always just let it sit on the back burner. Didn't get around to it until today. And I watched it for reviewing it and discussing it with you. 
Mm. So you watched it today? Yes, I did. And do you? Okay, so you know you know exactly what I'm about uh, to say about the climbing sequence. What uh, the please. actual heck? Why did we spend 15 minutes watching Tom Cruise climb a rock? <laughs> what in the world? And this this is like this film spent I kid you not 40 minutes spinning up. Like there would like this film was not the least bit interesting for the first 40 minutes. There spinning was up nothing to, going on. It was spinning up for 40 minutes into action sequences that were full of bloat exposition and slow motion shots. Yes. Oh, the slow motion. Oh my word. I, I forget. I forget sometimes like I should remember because I'm a huge fan of the matrix, but, but, and, and I actually think the slow-mo works very well in the matrix, but I forget how much that inspired the slow-mo era that got so bad. And, and this film falls right into that trap. It's just like, oh my goodness, let's slow down and watch everything in slow motion. Everything. TJ, everything. I could not believe some of the shots they chose, not only to even put into the movie that did not deserve to be a shot in the film, just because it was so cliche or in an empty sort of way, it felt like they were trying to be cool when yeah. it was so lacking substance that the only way you could possibly give an excuse for it was that the director thought, hey, that is kind of cool, doesn't it? It'd be good in the trailer, don't you think? Yeah. But there was way too many of those shots. And then more than half of them were played in slow motion. And I'm sure they thought that they were doing something good for its time. Oh, it the Matrix, man. It was like the Matrix. Oh, it's cool. No, TJ. <sighs> oh, oh. No, I agree. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of ways in which they copied other films, what is wrong with this soundtrack? It's in your face. It, there's like so many different like remixes of the main theme yes. that it's yeah, it's, it's too it's it, it's abused. It, well, it, and the it, worst part molested. is like the worst part is Hans Zimmer did the soundtrack. I would not have guessed that. I don't know how that even. I like, would have to say that he was only doing it this way because that was the direction he was given. I I, I was wondering what he was smoking most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh. while we're thinking about it, that makes complete sense for another uh, kind of detail about this movie. Hearing the soundtrack, it did not make me think Hans Zimmer. It made me think someone is trying to rip Hans Zimmer off because <laughs> I am definitely hearing bits of the Gladiator soundtrack in this thing. Yeah. And it doesn't fit. No. Like what was with the, the choral, like the, the, vo the vocals and, oh, and interweaving it and like terrible. this sappy sort of, oh, woe is us, the angstiness of spy life, and I'm going to die. I guess I will interweave the Earth theme from the Gladiator soundtrack. Ooh, <laughs> it was, uh, stop it. Would it be I fair to say to that this movie. is the low point of the series? Oh, uh, yes. Going back to the hairdo, like it is the <laughs> epitome of this entire movie. Yes. It, it describes the entire movie. We're trying to be cute. We're trying to be stylish. We guess – and everything that they did to try and be cute and cool was just off-putting. Yeah, it, it's and it's oh man, it's it's it really is like signifying everything about this movie. And it's it's like I don't even have words for this, Joe, uh, it, because Tom Cruise his character. I have, I have it, a it, word for it. <laughs> trash. Utter no, it, it, it's insulting the audience. Yeah. Well, like every everything that Tom Cruise does in this film, including his hair, is so antithetical to the character we came to know in Mission Impossible. Like he is now this cocky, arrogant, show off self. What I don't know. Like I just 
I did not like Tom Cruise in this movie, and I usually You're like absolutely Tom right. Like, there, Ethan was just an airhead. Like, apart from the fact that he was skilled <laughs> at some action, he he was just uh, he he manipul. Okay, he objectified the leading lady, mm-hmm. and then after the fact, he wants to save her life. But you know, okay, that so, redeems so speaking, the fact. Speaking of uh, objectifying the lead, leading lady, not only were the slow mo shots used in the action sequences, they the, my, my one of my notes here is what is with the slow mo on the dance floor <laughs> and them staring at each other? We don't even know who this woman is, and she and Tom Cruise just sort of it goes, Ooh, and, and and like you're panning around Tom Cruise, they're staring at each other. There's like these. I suppose there's supposed to be these sparks and tension in the air. And then she walks off and literally he's watching her walk off to do her thief thing. What did she think was going to happen? Like this whole thing is just dumb. They were attempting to do many things that would seem inherently cool, but unfortunately it was just all false pretenses. Like sometimes the action was interesting. The rest of the time it was just hokey because they were trying too hard. They were too ambitious. So here, here are two notes that I made while I was watching this film. First note, Mission Impossible, the first film, felt like a small and carefully crafted film. It felt intimate, right? Mission Impossible 2 feels like it wants to be a big blockbuster spectacular, and it fails spectacularly. <laughs> yes, and I, I don't know what people at the time must have thought, but my guess is, is that they were largely disappointed as well. But this film got a six stars out of ten. On IMDb. Yeah, it's so weird. Like, I was looking at the ratings just today preparing for the show, and um, uh, no, I was actually looking at the box office. The ratings are abysmal for Mission Impossible 2. The audience liked it less than the critics. Um, but but it made $546.3 million. Like, how did it do that? I, I think it was still you know, riding the waves of the first film. Maybe. But also, it was a Tom Cruise film, and everybody would watch a Tom Cruise film. He was a pretty face. A lot of people dug that. And then there, the fact that this is Mission Impossible, you can say, well, what else are we going to watch in theaters this weekend? There's mm. really nothing else to watch except MI. Are you really going to skip this movie? No way. You don't want to be the one person who didn't see this film when you liked part one, do you? You know, so you're going to see it because you're a completionist or you're a Tom Cruise fan or because you care about Mission Impossible because you're feeling nostalgic about the original show. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, boy, this this film. It's, it's but so you remember this too that there were some interesting faces in this movie. Some of my favorite actors were supporting characters, like Anthony Hopkins. And what was he the, doing in this film? What was the was, point? He was trying to be John Voight. <laughs> but <laughs> no. Uh huh. Anyway, um, yeah, he did not serve any purpose in this film, and he, he didn't serve cut. any purpose. But that said, I still like it. There are no redeeming qualities. Like nothing can redeem this film. But it was actually one of the silver linings was seeing him and William Mapother. I don't think that that actor is uh, used well enough. I really liked him, and I, I know that he had a very bit role in this film. I just find it interesting because he is Tom Cruise's cousin. And they mm. they practiced uh, acting together. They get they got their uh, career started together. At the time, neither of them had any idea if they would make it. But Matt Brother hasn't done as much, and I think it's a rotten shame because I think he's pretty good. He he's one of these guys who falls into the the a, a cliche roles almost every time of some bit you know two bit like uh, sci fi film. You you probably you'd probably like it. But uh, yeah, he's he's a good actor. And so, w- which one is he? William Mapother, he played, uh, see, I have him. He Wallace. was Wallace, yes. I don't know who Wallace is. 
well, he had a very small role to play in this film. Like uh, I, I didn't even bother to really scrutinize what the point of his character was in the film. Oh but he was there, yeah. I was, recognize his face. Enough. I don't remember what he did, but I recognize his face from the film. But that's also, that's leading into one of the other big problems with sci, uh, no, no, not sci-fi spy related movies in general, TJ. Doesn't it annoy you how often the, the plot is, sort of communicated in a really convoluted way to make it seem self-important and big and important and make you feel stupid. You mean like in this film? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, this is a problem for a lot of spy films. This is actually a little bit true about all the mission impossible films, but it was especially bad in this film. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was going to say, actually one of the things that mission impossible three got right was it, it toned that down. And so the plot was pretty easy to understand in mission impossible three. And I didn't understand everything that was going on in this film. I mean, it was the overall plot. Isn't it too hard to understand, you know, company. It, it, it isn't because I mean, like on the one hand I say it is difficult in general for these spy films, but the reason that this films is easier to understand is because the villain needlessly monologues half of the time. And so he's always telling you again and again, what's happening and why. And it's like the guy, he's just the guy that wouldn't shut up. That's true. I mean, he, he definitely has monologue syndrome. Um, yeah, we we have to compare, I suppose, um, because the mission impossible three, like this, this villain does not hold a candle to (laughs) Owen Davian. I I love, uh, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman in, in mission impossible three. And this, this film is just like, I'm a stupid villain. I'm going to talk about everything that I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, While you're thinking about it, one of the bigger problems with this film versus the other mission impossibles is that they consistently use too much unrestrained emotion from all the characters Mm -hmm. like everybody Mm -hmm. seems to be wearing all of their emotions on their sleeve right on the surface and they're not thinking they're just emoting all the time yep and even anthony hopkins like acting like i'm your boss and i'm gonna say something very witty and now i'm gonna pause and let you absorb that fat because it sounded very interesting aren't you intellectually stimulated i find it (laughs) stimulating how stimulating i can be (laughs) like i got that air half of the time and i didn't like it so uh, do you want to talk about anything that you liked about this film? You've already hinted it a little bit, um, so I have, I have a couple of things. Uh, well, it's still worth mentioning that pr- this film probably looked good on trailers and spots because the production values were pretty high. You know, sets looked good. The dressing was good. Uh, most of the time, the special effects were good. Mm. You know, the explosions were impressive. They, they tried to cram a lot of in- stuff in here. You have interesting helicopter shots. You have interesting locations. They show, you know, great landscape and ocean shots and uh, all in all too much, but it was pretty cool. Uh, But this also leads into probably one more of those. What is going on with Tom Cruise's wavy hair and the white (laughs) dove? What the heck? Where did the dove come from and why? Uh, Oh, Well, and speaking while we're here, before we talk about things we like, well, while we're talking about the end scene, well, that's actually the second to last scene where he's uh, he does this mask switch, right? Where you think that he's the bad guy, and he drags in what looks like the Tom Cruise good guy. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Um, so he drags him in, and like, 
So I have many, many problems with this scene. One, when did he have those masks made, and how did he know that that was going to be the way that worked out so that he could use those masks? Yeah, and, and, and theory, B, when did he have time had one of, to apply them? Exactly. If he had one of these masks, <laughs> it should take you at least an experienced makeup artist, like, what, an hour, maybe two? Yeah, well, we saw in Mission Impossible 3, it took at least 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> At least. Uh, yeah. oh, okay, and, and another shot where Luther supposedly dies in a car bomb explosion. Yeah. But then the way in which they cut to the man flying the chopper, you hear him panic and he's like, Luther, Luther, Luther. And then you see him for just a split second. And you can clearly tell that the shot they, they used of the face of the pilot had nothing to do with his panic that Luther had just died. It was like a, 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 just a random shot of the pilot that had nothing to do. Maybe they, he didn't even know that the camera was rolling on him. Yeah. And it was like, was that supposed to be a reaction shot? Like that was a, that was horrible. It was miserable. TJ. John Woo, my friends. <laughs> and, and, and then the, again, while we're talking about things we don't like, the, which is everything, the geography of the last sequence where they're racing on the motorcycles and things and just <laughs> nothing about that made any sense. None of the geography worked. None of the action worked like in, in all the slow-mo and the garbage. Not, nothing about it worked. The entire payoff of this film and it completely fell flat. <sighs> If there's one thing we can learn from this movie, TJ, I think it is this is how not to make an action movie with Tom Cruise. <laughs> Absolutely. It is the one action film I've seen Tom Cruise in. Um, I'd say mostly recent action film. There was one other, but I won't mention it. <laughs> but for the most Oblivion? part. No, I like that one. Um, I'm talking about an, uh, there was an older Tom Cruise film that I don't like that's, a, that's technically an action film. This oh. film is the other Tom Cruise action film that I don't like. Um, and most of them I, I like. I mean, I like Tom Cruise. You got to work hard to make me not like it. And I didn't like this film. There were two things. <laughs> I just wanted to mention two things that I did like about uh, the, this film. Um, just, and they were just fleeting, fleeting moments. And and I I, I did actually find this first scene where um, Tom Cruise prevents uh, uh, Tandy, um, uh, what's her name, from uh, from doing his job. Um, Tandy Newton, uh, the character Naya. Naya, yes, thank you. Uh, I did find that scene quite delightful. That enti- the way that entire thing played out, that was fun. Uh, that was one shining little moment of fun in an, an entire <laughs> an entire film of uh, yuck. Well, you say so? <laughs> yeah. And I then even, I, I actually like thought that, that things got actually almost started to get moving with the uh, horse racing stuff. I, I enjoyed those scenes, and I enjoyed the suspense and the drama that was going on there. And oh, did he realize that she slipped the the thing into? Oh, and it was the wrong jacket pocket. And then he says. It's in my jacket pocket when he gets back. Right, <laughs> right jacket pocket. And you realize he knows. Like, that stuff worked for me. And that those are the only things in the film that worked for me. And then after that, the entire film didn't work for me again. But I loved that stuff. Honestly, GJ, I, I cannot pinpoint any one thing that I honestly thought was redeeming about the movie. Mm. I... I think that if I were not really trying to pay attention to it for reviewing purposes, I would have probably just fallen asleep because it was all too much of the same things that were just uninteresting to me. I even noticed that throughout the film, many of the action shots were repetitive, like pulling the same trope over and over again. And I'm not just talking about slow motion. And then when it came down to the climax, 
it was so severely campy how ha 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 the villain's got a gun and now he's going to shoot you and you're going to die and that means you lose but the villain's going to die anyway right but then in a bait and switch really fast quick on the draw ethan hunt pops a gun out of the sand and he jumps to the ground and he shoots you over and over again in the back somehow even though you the bad guy have no reason not to make a good shot you don't make a good shot and right, you are right. riddled with bullets and you die. You know how they, we complain yeah. about how um, uh, um, Bounty Hunter and Star Wars doesn't, you know, he shoots like in the most recent Star Wars where George Lucas has messed it up, you know, the most recent cuts of that. The Bounty Hunter shoots point blank and misses. Well, that actually happened in this film. The bad guy shoots point blank and misses, and then Ethan Hunt kicks the gun up out of the thing, grabs it in midair, spins around, and, and puts five bullets in the guy. Like, no, this is not the way this actually would have yes. gone down. And he wasn't wearing a stormtrooper helmet, so he has absolutely no excuse. No excuse. Show title. <laughs> so, yes, Mission Impossible 2, overly ambitious, and it doesn't know where to draw the line. And uh, so for these reasons, I give it just one star out of five. Oh, it is you. crummy. I do not intend to watch it again. I cannot <laughs> imagine a scenario where I would recommend anybody should watch it unless I'm recommending to them that they watch this to learn valuable lessons on what not to do and what not to enjoy. <laughs> John Woo, my friends. Uh, I don't know. I've, so many people love his stuff. and I just ugh. Um, Yeah, so I give this film two out of five stars and for all the reasons we've already just talked about this is not a good film people not a good film <sighs> so shall we talk about mission impossible three yeah and i want to compare and contrast this one a little bit with the last one it seems like mission impossible's franchise wanted to see what different directors could do and give it different takes this is where they introduced jj abrams yeah you don't think that that happened though because john woo completely destroyed the the like the, how are we going to make another film after that garbage <laughs> exactly <just> like- <laughs> and i think that hollywood the studios themselves would know we are in a real bind here tj what the heck are we going to do like we need somebody that is smart enough to go back to the roots of the project like the roots of the narrative and restore that balance and somehow basically counteract what the mess that we produced in part two. And so I feel like part three deliberately makes the attempt to right the wrongs, to make up for the sins, to redeem itself and pardon for its sins. You keep using the word part. Part indicates some connectivity and there's really not. um, So I would not use the word part. It is mission impossible three. It is the third installment though. You're right. And and, and you probably could watch these films in isolation apart from each other. Yeah. I, 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 um, (laughs) I tweeted as I was watching these films in succession, let's pretend MI2 didn't happen. And then immediately I started watching MI3 and I'm like, oh, look, he has a girl and it's not the same girl from MI2. And they, the, the, no reference has ever made anything that happened in MI2 in the entirety of MI3. And so like they literally ignored Mission Impossible 2. Right. Like, it never happened. And I, that, I think that was the best thing they could have done. And one of the refreshing things about part three was that they respect the leading lady. They made her character yes. more relevant. And they humanized Ethan by establishing his wife. That was interesting, even if it, even if it's not like the most well played dramatic relationship in motion pictures. It's pretty good for your average action flick. Yeah, and and I just you know I'm not a fan of JJ's action style in general, and and it's been one of my frustrations with Star Trek. I feel like that's going to be one of my frustrations with Star Wars, and it's certainly a frustration here. But even so. 
like the action in Mission Impossible 3 is so much more competent than Mission Impossible 2. This film gets off to a great start. It does not take 40 minutes to get started. It, it, this film immediately just throws you in where you need to be, and it, it lets you know, hey, this is not the last film. This is going to be fun. And uh, it was it was just I, – I just – everything about this film – and maybe my rating will be a little higher than it should be just because I watched it back-to-back with Mission Impossible 2, and I'm like, uh, after the utter dreck of MI2, anything anything to wet my palate <laughs> with something, <laughs> a little bit of drip of water on my uh, dry and parched tongue from the hell flames of MI2 um, is going to be fine. <laughs> Uh, so I, how many yeah. times have you watched part two? Mission Impossible <laughs> two. This was the only the second time that I've ever watched it. I, I, I'm trying not to say part TJ. It's just really hard not to. Yes. So impossible. It, it is the most impossible of the movies. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It, w- one other thing related to what we're saying about impossible three is that it kind of represented that turning point in a lot of movies where they were moving over to digital effects and they may or may not have been aware of it yet at the time they were exploring the, you know, the dawn of the next age of action films. They wanted to see new styles on screen. They wanted to attempt mm-hmm. things that had not been done before. Yeah. You have JJ Abrams, which was a director that they, they were experimenting with at the time. And, and you got to see where he led the style of you know lens flares and colorization with a lot of gritty grungy green and blues and bright yellows and you know uh sort of like bleached highlights and dark you know uh sort of like ink blotty shadows and stuff like that and even so it didn't really take away from the film it feels like it was one of the few times where I don't think it was warranted. I would have avoided the special color, the colorized edition of Impossible Three if I could. If I could just see it the way it was color graded in Impossible, the first film, I would have preferred it. But uh, it's okay, and it doesn't take away from the film too much. So all the more power to them, because, like I said, this was like a a, a trend change. You know, you didn't know what you were supposed to do at the time. So I feel like you can forgive this film for going through some adolescence for action films at the time. Yeah. That was okay. So mission impossible three is also a return to form from mission impossible in this way too, for me in that it, um, it made, it, it made the stakes real again. Like we, we saw that, that I, the IMF can fail and that there is issues. Uh, and you know, there was an agent that was lost uh, very near the beginning of this film. And one that, that Ethan Hunt had recommended and he's kind of in hot water for the entire thing. Uh, you know, and you know, we saw that of course in MI in the first one where, you know, the entire mission went bust and, and, you know, mission impossible Two just felt like, Oh, we just smooth everything over with a little butter. And, and this one, you know, it immediately throws you in and it says, Hey, these guys, they make mistakes. And, uh, this really is an impossible mission and impossible mission. And there are stakes here that are important. Um, so this was also a return to form in that way. Mm. Um, I, I believed the romance in this film a whole lot more, even though we barely knew anything about this woman that he like, like it, everything just felt more believable. It's like, Oh look, Tom Cruise actually can act in a romance, you know, in a, in a way again. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I thought Michelle Monaghan was, was perfect for this role and I wish that she had a bigger role in ghost protocol and I wish she was going to be in the upcoming film, but she's not. So that's frustrating. Um, so yeah, I, I this this film was already off to a much better start than Mission Impossible Two ever got to anywhere in its entirety of its film. 
Now, what's interesting is I, I, I have to admit, I forget. I'm a little sketchy on some of the details in this film. I, I saw it earlier this year again, and I still apparently I'm wrong. I was just looking up the, the description of this movie and it says that he is trying to protect his girlfriend. I thought he was trying to protect his wife. It is his wife. Okay. So yeah, they got married. The they got married very near the beginning of this film. Uh, okay. IMDb, get that right. Yeah. It's kind of important. IMDb is a user sort of crowdsource thing. You got, you know, got to pay attention. Um, I, I do appreciate that they keep on bringing Luther into this series. Yes, like he didn't I, have to be around, but but he's, 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 like yeah, he's a good ca- supporting character. I like Luther. He's so good. He's so fun. Um, and I was, you know, wished that we would have had him in Ghost Protocol, but I guess he just wasn't available. And he is going to play, I understand, a, a good role in uh, Rogue Nation. So that'll be fun. Yeah, and I wouldn't be a bit surprised because – at this point, they've well established the better the the better characteristics of the entire franchise. You, they've established Simon Pegg and uh, yes. Jeremy yeah, Renner what a from the next film. Fantastic addition to Mission Impossible. That feels very Mission Impossible to me. The, the addition of Benji, um, and just from what I know of the old TV show, that feels very Mission Impossible. Um, I. Uh, yeah, so I, I I am disappointed. Like, I actually enjoyed Maggie Q in this film, and, and oftentimes she comes off as a hey, nobody. I'm just sort of there to to fill her kind of thing, and and she actually seemed to be playing a role in this film. Um, so that was good. Uh, I did wish that she was in Ghost Protocol, but she wasn't. Um, and obviously, this this film uh still has of all the Mission Impossible films the best villain we'll probably ever see in Mission Impossible in Owen Davian. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who uh, sadly is no longer with us. Um, what a fantastic, what a fantastic villain he he played. It was just, it was so, you know how he he always does does this uh, underacting thing, and it just works so well. Here's like, uh, you know, you have family, you have you have a girlfriend, <laughs> you have a wife. I'm I'm gonna kill her. You know that, right? I mean, it was just it was just so great. It was wonderful. It was just wonderful. And especially after the over-the-top villain of MI2. I mean, it just works so well. Just so well. I remember seeing this film in theaters. It was one of the first action films I saw in theaters, and it was a very positive experience. I, that being said, TJ, even though I genuinely like this movie and I find it entertaining and I was happy to share it with some friends, I I still find some of the exposition a little convoluted. And it seems like, again, really? it's intentional. It makes it a little bit hard at times mm. to to remember what the movie was really about. Like the one thing I came away with remembering every time I, I go to watch the movie again, I'm like, I all I remember is Ethan Hunt is trying to save his wife because, you know, the bad guys are trying to use her to get to him. I think that's, that's all I really remember every time. Yeah. And it's not, it's not that it's impossible to understand the movie while you're watching it. It's just, it's practically impossible to remember. I, one of the times I even fell asleep watching this movie and there are hardly any movies I've ever fallen asleep watching before. Hmm. So I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm just saying like, it's, it's not completely, it's not evenly baked. It's not consistent enough that I feel like it was one of the best impossible movies. Um, I, 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 just, no. I completely agree with everything you said. I'm just, uh, I'm just kind of looking at the other side of the coin here. I, I would say it's a good movie, not a, a great, great movie. You know, it's not, and it's not even the second best in the in the series. But it's it's fun. Like, there's only one film so far in the Mission Impossible series that I really dislike, and that's Mission Impossible Two. This one I like. You know, I like it a lot. Um, and, and again, I'm J.J. Uh, Abrams, ugh, but. It's fine, um, and and you know there are a lot of good things that make up for any of the bad things that JJ brought to this film. Um, 
But see, can, that's the thing is, can, I think you're a little bit too hard on JJ. I, I don't always like him, but I usually appreciate him. I usually like him, and I, I think he's refreshing compared to the likes of what we could have expected from a director of, oh, let's say, Die Hard Part 20, you know, or Terminator X, you know, <laughs> whatever you want to get from any old Tom, Dick, and Harry that wants to direct an action film. I don't feel like... JJ did us a disservice, not like Jay Wu or whatever his name John was. John Wu. Yeah. John Wu. Can we agree that the entire Vatican sequence is probably the best thing in this film? Yeah. 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 Completely. Fun, fantastic. Just a lot of fun. Um, I, I did think if we want to talk about the, my dislikes for Mission Impossible three, I did think that the, um, the, the end of our villain uh, was a little bit anticlimactic and didn't make a lot of sense. Like, oh, we're fighting and shooting and he's killing people and uh, splat and he got run over by a car. <laughs> like, ah, come on, I think you could have done better than that. I, I mean, I think they were going for surprising and certainly it was surprising, but I think they could have done better. The confrontation just felt a little flat when that happened. And, and he's still like, hmm. yeah, I don't know. There was that moment when the uh, the the woman. Do you know the one I'm talking about? Was it Carrie Russell's character, Lindsay? Yes. Lindsay. Yeah. When she Lindsay dies, ah, oh, every time that gets to me, I'm like, no. Yes. Well, no, that, no, that's no. what I was talking about when I'm talking about. There's actual stakes in this film, and they yes. show us that, that the, yeah. they can still make you know, and, and they and I will give JJ this. Like he made me care for that character in the very little time that we had with her, and it introduced a. I thought this was a great plot device, like this you know, this time delay capsule that he can activate at any time and, uh, you know, poof, you know, you're done. Um, I, I don't know. It, <laughs> it, 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 it worked really well. I was very happy with, with the, the entire, uh, the way that all worked out. Hmm. So you want to sum up what we think, uh, give it a star rating. I do. Um, so I give it, uh, see, I don't want to give it as low as 3.5, but I don't quite want to give it four. So I'm like 3.7555. So yeah, somewhere in there. It's probably 3.5, three and a half stars on the 10-point scale. But um, yeah, I I enjoy this movie a lot. And uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman makes this movie entirely worth it, no matter what else this movie has to offer. But it has plenty else to offer as well, such as Tom Cruise actually can act. If you've just seen Mission Impossible 2 and you think otherwise, please see this film. It's good. Um, I enjoyed the... Uh, the humanizing of Ethan Hunt. Um, I enjoyed the uh, the romantic prospects of Michelle Monaghan, um, and I uh, am sad that she never made it to the net, to Ghost Protocol, uh, except for a very end scene. And so, yeah, um, th- uh, this film was rated seventy percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and I feel like that's about right mm. by the critics. By the way, seventy percent by the critics. Yeah, I give it three and a half stars as well. It's very good, but not great yet. Very refreshing after part two. I agree. So, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, uh, or should I say Mission Impossible 4 Ghost Protocol, whatever you want to do. It's Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, but it is MI4. Um, And this one is directed by Brad Bird, uh, who did the fantastic Incredibles. Um, And in my opinion, I think uh, that that he has been unjustly maligned. Uh, That's another podcast that I haven't listened to yet. Um, But he's been unjustly maligned uh, for his work on his most recent film, I don't know. I just I think that Brad Bird brings a sense of wonder and awe to filmmaking. Um, I think that he did a fantastic job with Ghost Protocol. Um, it is my second favorite in the series thus far, um, and I hear Rogue Nation may fix may change that for me. Um, I'm hearing really good things about Rogue Nation, but so far Ghost Protocol uh, really 
really brought something special, I think, to this uh, franchise. Um, I, even though it has some ridiculous things, like the turbine sequence uh, is a little bit ridiculous. <laughs> um, uh, oh, one thing I noted, uh, Joe, the Syndicate, which is going to be featured heavily in uh, in uh, what I just said, the Rogue Nation, uh, the film coming out this weekend, was mentioned in this film, in, at the end of this film. Hmm? Yeah, the, really? the Syndicate. Yeah, I found that interesting. That is that is a good that's a good step in the right direction I think giving them a little relationship there like you pointed out earlier these films earlier on could all be completely independent of each other you may not even feel like they were the same characters at times yeah but now they're trying to maintain some continuity crossover yeah so what did you think of Ghost Protocol oh I love it yeah I, I'm delighted every time I see this film yes it's it's definitely off the beaten path. One of the things that's really refreshing about Brad Bird is I don't think he goes into filmmaking feel like, oh, I am a live action director and I prefer this particular genre. And so I'm going to continue to refine my craft about this particular genre with these particular actors mm. because I keep on returning to the same ones. Hi, I'm Steven Spielberg. You, know, <laughs> you don't get that impression from Brad Bird. You feel like he is more experimental, but he also finds a couple of themes that he cannot get away from and he keeps on using them. He uses, he employs them no matter what kind of movie he's making, but they also feel as though they relate to each other. So he, it, it, there's sort of a journey of the director's own uh, themes that you get that it cross over his films, whether you are watching the iron giant or, Oh, even Ratatouille. So, I mean, it, it, TJ, it's crazy. This film was directed by the same guy who did the Incredibles and Ratatouille. Right, right. That is saying an awful lot for the director's abilities because wasn't this the first live action film he made? That could be. I'm I'm looking him up right now to verify that. Uh, da, 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 director. So he was a director of Amazing Stories TV series. I don't know what that is. I'm clicking on it to find out. That look looks like some sort of live action thing, but it was a TV show. Um, there's a TV short, Do the Bartman, and then he's the director of two episodes <coughs> of The Simpsons, and then there's The Iron Giant in 1999, um, and uh, that is animated, I believe, right? Yes. Yeah. And then The Incredibles, which is also animated, Ratatouille, which is animated, and then you know Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. So Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol is certainly his first big film. And it's uh, his, yeah, it's his first uh, big live action film. So I don't know if I would attribute it to meant, yeah. him or the writers or both, but this film is really well structured where you feel like every sequence, they felt compelled to make every sequence count yes. evenly, well, well maintained, well, well refined. Paced. This film is so well paced. And understandable, like you didn't feel like there was any particular scene shot or sequence that was completely unwarranted or optional like yeah yeah you could go without that scene for this entire film and it would still be pretty good no, no, no. i think everything was driving towards the, the you know the you know even though some of their missions would fail and they had to redirect or figure it out or whatever like it was all driving towards the plot there was nothing thrown away no no throwaway scenes in this film one of the side benefits of this movie is how they contrast the use of technology in ghost protocol with the other movies. Oh yeah. I loved that the equipment was failing left and right. Yes. Like they were making the masks and for the first time the machine like just, you know, just gives up the ghost and like they can't go with the mask because the masks don't work. Like I love that. We never, yeah, we've never seen technology out. fail in a movie like this before. Let's see. Uh, the phone booth was supposed to self-destruct <laughs> yes. and he needs to, it needs to be knocked around. Yes. 
the gloves climbing up the glass. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's it, a it, lot fail. of failed technology in this film. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, one of my best, oh, man. Uh, the best lines in the movie is uh, blue is glue and red is dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> blue. That's what I remember. Blue is glue. What's red? Dead. <laughs> and I really appreciated how unnerved it seemed Tom Cruise character was throughout that entire scene that he was one thing after the next. Do, literally, it seemed like he was really annoyed and stressed that he was actually doing impossible things back to back to back. Yes. And, he, yes. and he had no earthly idea if he could pull it off. <laughs> that, that was well played. So do you, do you have a problem with heights? I, uh, a fear of heights or anything like that? Do you have, I do in person, but not if I'm watching a movie. So this is interesting. You? Uh, I, I can't like, I, there are certain things like there's this film coming out that Joseph, I think it's Joseph Gordon Levitt. And he like walks out on this pier. Yes. Um, that really gets me. But for the most part, no, but in person, yeah. Like I literally like, I get these weird, I, I, I don't know what fear of heights is like for most people, but for me, <laughs> it's like I get this weird sensation in the pit of my stomach and in my hands and my feet and just like, ah, it just, and, and I literally <laughs> like, I'm even on the small screen, I think, I, I don't think I've watched this on the big screen, but even on my little 32 inch TV, like I'm getting that feeling in my, that, that, that fear of heights feeling all over me as I'm watching these scenes, I'm literally like cringing into the corner of the couch and like, the, whatever Brad Bird did in this film really worked well. It just, it really made me feel like, feel Tom Cruise's, uh, uh, that he was present in the situation. And what a great set piece. I, I just, everything about that sequence is, is impo- as stupid and, and nonsensical as it is. And that technology doesn't really exist. And I loved every minute of it. <laughs> Another one of the rewarding things about this film was, uh, how they just used all the characters in a sort of a balanced sort of way. You didn't get too much or too little of Ethan. You didn't get too much or too little of the leading lady. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jane is a character. I, I kind of wish we could see her some more. I know. Uh, I'm sad that she's not going to be in the net in, in uh, rogue nation. I wouldn't be surprised if there, it was their plans to create a great team with this film for a hypothetical sequel, but the, well, they, whatever reason, I they mean, if you remember the, the end of this film, they certainly did. Like Tom Cruise yeah. is like, I don't know what brought this team together, but I'm certainly glad it, that we came together. And it's like, uh, and then we, here are your missions. Should you choose to accept them? And then off they go into the sunset. It's like, yeah, we're going to see these guys again. That was the idea, but it, it's not like, like Jeremy Renner is going to be in rogue nation and Benji is, but where, where's Paula Patton? I'm so frustrated in Jane. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Cause I really liked, she was really good in this film. I also appreciate that this one just seemed like unlike uh part two and even at times the first film that this one was trying to be clever and it almost always worked when it was, it didn't feel like they had crossed over the line into false pretenses. You know, it's making you feel kind of like, yeah, you're, you're trying to pull a fast one over on a stupid audience, but no, in this film, they really respect us. And that's saying a lot for an action film. I know a lot of the best action films, they can't help themselves. They, they do things that even that Terminator movie, the <laughs> Terminator Genesis, where Are it's you really like, comparing ghost protocol to Terminator Genesis. Well, yeah, because if you don't laugh at Terminator Genesis, sometimes you'll cry. <laughs> and in point. this case, good point. You'll just, you'll be like not compelled to do either. You'll, you'll be like, yeah, that, that really genuinely worked. Oh, that was really clever. Oh, that was really interesting. Perhaps the one time it got on the edge was when there was the, uh, the magnets that would hold up Jeremy Renner's character while he was going through. The, that's, that's part of the turban sequence that I mentioned earlier. That whole thing is yeah. ridiculous. 
it was ridiculous, but I didn't mind it too much. Right. It's it's that weird thing where in this film there are a couple of things that are ridiculous. Like the whole oh, the sandstorm shows up just as uh Tom Cruise is uh um he Ethan Hunt is going out to try to catch the bad guy, and so now there's a sandstorm and he can't catch up with him and it's hard to see, and then as soon as the bad guy's gone, the sandstorm lifts. You're like, What come on. And the same thing with the turbine sequence, it's like ugh. Come on, like that whole thing is ridiculous, and he's blowing him up, and he and he flips around, and he and the thing. Ah, it was fun though. Like they was, were doing yeah. it for gags and laughs, and it, it still paid off. But like it, that's what I was, that's where I was actually going, and I forgot. Yeah. Uh, but Good. but you, uh, <laughs> you 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 forgive it because it just it's so fun. Mm. Yeah. Uh, what did you feel about the Kremlin blowing up? I I, I don't know. I didn't did think that, that was necessary, but it's so vital to the plot that again it you kind of forgive it. Um, and, and it, but it, it well establishes that whatever go, whatever world mission impossible is in is not our world because the Kremlin has not been blown up in our world, obviously. Right. (laughs) So, um, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was a little weird. Um, and certainly the response to it was a little muted actually. I mean, I know they were disavowing IMF and everything, but like, you mean to tell me there really wouldn't be more fallout from from somebody blowing up the Kremlin than, oh, well, maybe we're not on such good terms with Russia. No, it'd be like, uh, hey, guys, I think they're launching nukes. Oh, they already did. Sorry. I mean, <laughs> you would think there would be a little more fallout. Yeah, I, I know. Uh, th- that's one of the things that feels like they used it well to raise the stakes, but then they didn't use it well to maintain a sense of realism. Right. And right. that was where the departure makes you wonder, like big question mark blowing up the Kremlin. Should we do that again? in, in, in another uh, mission impossible film? I don't know. Probably not. Yeah. I think it worked I, I, better I, in Stargate, whichever episode of Stargate it was, they blew up the Kremlin in an alternate reality. Sorry. you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Anyway. Okay. So back to Brandt, Jeremy Renner's character. Fantastic. Yeah. One thing though about him, I don't know that this is a bad thing, but it seems like we got an awful lot of Brant time. A lot of time to hear about Brant's problems, he, how Brant's struggling with things. And, and the fact that he's in Rogue Nation, I feel like he's being somewhat positioned to be a bigger star in the franchise as Tom Cruise now is over 50 and he he's going away. Mm. And I think maybe Renner's being brought in because Renner's the new hot thing lately these days. So. I think yeah, that's interesting. The, he yeah. was in uh, the Bourne sequel, the Bourne yeah, Eternity. Yeah, that didn't work out so well, but I don't blame that on on Renner. Bourne Legacy, the Bourne, <sighs> the Bourne yeah. Forever. Um, he, yeah, he was supposed to be lined up as the continuing Bourne character. Mm-hmm. I find it interesting because Renner, as an actor, in a couple of interviews, has explained that to him this is just work. And yeah, he enjoys it, but really what he enjoys is acting, acting, and he prefers stage acting. He he only wanted to make a living, and that's why he got into movies. And now that he has made a claim to fame, it's not like this is the sort of job he wants in the long run. So I don't know if he will eventually get burned out, but so far he's been putting the best foot forward. And I wouldn't think that of him by watching his movies. I feel like he he's really trying to work hard and do a good job on screen, and I'm I, I'm happy about that. That he put he puts his best foot forward. And um, what do you feel about – I don't know about this. Again, any of my dislikes for this film have a great big question mark over top of them like, is this actually a problem or is it just me? Is well, it, and, uh, and it's sort of like – I don't really – I find it hard to criticize this film because I enjoyed it so much and it was so much fun. Right. Like for instance, there are cliches in this movie, TJ. 
but the cliches, the the genre tropes don't ultimately no, I, I, disappoint see, me the in thing. the film. In, in general, I don't have a problem with cliches. I have a problem when cliches are used like either a they're used uh in 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 ways that are super cliche or they're not used ironically or they're they're taken too seriously that's when i and, and i feel like this film knows when it's using cliches and it even almost points them out like haha look at that <laughs> you mm. know i don't know I, I i don't have a problem with it so lastly i don't know if this is actually a bad thing or not but again they really did a good job of making imf headquarters and their intel department seem totally incompetent and useless and abandoned so i don't know if imf as an organization is on its own two feet for rogue nation or if somehow they're going to wash over that little detail and assume that imf is just as strong as ever i will say that one thing that's frustrating is that it seems like in, in mission impossible 3 and in ghost protocol they're they're making the IMF to be a little too um uh like 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 the villainy is almost from the inside like there's there's incompetence on the inside and it's frustrating and I feel like Rogue Nation is headed there because of Alec Baldwin whoever he is like like they have a new you know head of IMF every movie and so I feel like Alec Baldwin is in some position like that he's like it's time to disband the IMF and we're gonna be stupid and 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 we're gonna declare you know uh, that they're that they all have to come in and face charges and like that that's that is becoming a trope that's frustrating me. I hope that Alec Baldwin is Al- Alec Baldwin. He's actually an undercover agent. I will see. <laughs> I, I don't want to speculate about Rogue Nation yet. I will see it in a couple of days. That's basically everything I have to say about this film, Ghost Protocol, except last note here is that it gets back to the roots for the Mission Impossible franchise. Yep. Going even all the way back to the premise of the television show. And I support them wholeheartedly. Bringing a team together, making it about the team. It's not all about Ethan Hunt. It never should have been. And if we could go back and remake uh, the Mission Impossibles 2 and 3, if there was anything they could do to make them better, it'd be to give them an extra injection of the premise of the original series because it got away from that. They were too experimental. Less experimental stuff, guys, and more consistent quality entertainment. You're not trying to be artistic with these films, or at least you shouldn't have been. You should have been just trying to tell a well-crafted film mm-hmm. and give us something that that makes you very proud to see an American action flick. Because look at that; they, they we do one of the you know we do a really bang up job with these things, and the whole world loves them. There's there's no shame in enjoying a great action film, you know, popcorn worthy film. No, I don't think so. And uh, yeah, Mission Impossible films are some of the best when they're at their best, like Ghost Protocol and the first film. I agree. So, do you have a star rating for this film? Yeah, I give it four stars because, apart from the fact that it can be dry at times when it falls into some of the cliches, even though they usually work. It's a lot of fun. It's funny. It's it's clever. It's well-structured. And Brad, the director, deserves a good high five. I agree. Maybe two or three. I swear to you that Joe and I did not compare notes before we made our star ratings, and we've been really Honest close. Honest to God. And we've been really close on our star ratings, and I'm going to be exact on this star rating. I am four out of five stars for this film, and it is a fantastic film and one I had a lot of fun watching. Um, the Rotten Tomatoes meter, uh, 93% from the critics, uh, 76% from the audience, and... In my opinion, second best Mission Impossible film thus far. The weird thing is, Joe, I was looking up the uh, Rotten Tomatoes ratings for the original Mission Impossible, and it's only 62%. I find that frustrating. So this is definitely the highest rated from the critics and the audience uh, in the series. 
That's interesting. Yeah. I, I don't really understand where they're coming from. I don't I know either. people who like the first film that don't like any of the others. And yeah, I was, I was talking with a few people on Twitter and they're like, ah, the only film that was any good was the first one. And yeah, ghost protocol was terrible. You know, blah, 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 blah. and I'm like, no, come on guys. Ghost protocol was pretty good. And it kind of recaptured the heart of the series. So I, yeah, I loved it. I thought it was good. If you, if you could only walk away with one of these movies and you, you didn't have the rest which one would you take? If I didn't, what was the last part? If you could just have one of these and you didn't have the rest for the rest of your life, mm. which one would you take? I had so much fun with Ghost Protocol, um, but I really like the first one. Can I have both? Yeah, see, you kind of need the first one to appreciate Ethan Hunt. Yeah, I'm going to have to go with the first one. If I have to choose between the four of them, I'm going to have to go with the first one. I'm gonna have to and take I would have one. to go with the fourth one because it's just a well-rounded it's a well-rounded mission. That's impossible. true. And I do like Brad bird and I do like Paula Patton and I, I like do, Simon you know, I do Pegg. like you can't get away from Simon Pegg. Oh, Simon Pegg. He's so fantastic. He was such a great addition to this cast. Fantastic. All right. All well, right. that is our review of three out of the four current mission impossible films next week. Really? I mean it this time we will be reviewing mission impossible rogue nation. I'll be seeing that this weekend. I'm really looking forward to it. It is the, I think it is actually the most highly rated mission impossible film now. Um, I'm looking, I saw it somewhere earlier. I had it up. I don't have it up anymore. So, so yeah, so it's actually, um, rated at 91%. So not quite as highly as, uh, as ghost protocol, but still really good. And the audience, uh, is really looking forward to it. It says 98% want to see this film at Rotten Tomatoes. So really looking forward to that. I'm hoping I'm not, I haven't built it up too far, uh, in my head so that it's not as good as, as it could be for me. But yeah, that's going to be next week. Uh, in the meantime, Joe, uh, where can people find you? I'm underscore Joe Darnell on Twitter, and I have this show, my website, the coffee podcast, the technology podcast. So find me at joedarnell.com. And I am TJ Draper Pro on Twitter. Watch that space for more info in the coming next couple of months. Uh, also, if you want a Movie Bite t-shirt, we only have 12, day, 12 days left uh, before you can, where you can still order them. So go to moviebite.com slash t-shirt. And you will be taken to the Teespring site where you can order the Movie Bite t-shirt. We really hope you do that. Uh, we're excited about that. Uh, and uh, if you want to find show notes for this episode, you go to moviebite.com slash mbpodcast slash 146. And there will be all the links to all the things that we talked about. And until next time, we hope you have a great time at the cinema. Bye, Joe. Bye, Joe.